Welcome to another retro episode of the Back in Time podcast. This week, we're going to take a listen to one of our older episodes here. Really one of our favorite horror movies from the 1990s. Really more of a slasher movie. We're going to be taking a listen to Scream from the archives. Make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, CastBox, Spotify. Every episode's up on YouTube. JD has his blog. I have the video entry that I do every month of top 10 things you didn't know. So right now there's Back to the Future and Batman Returns on there, two episodes. Check everything out. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Back in Time Pod. I'm at Kautry29. JD is at Unjust Justin. Let's go ahead and get to the screen episode. Enjoy. David herself for you? Baby, now that Billy tried the mute later, do you think Sid would go out with me? <laughs> no, I don't at all. No. You know what I think it is? You know, I think it's her father. And why can't they find their pops, man? Because he's probably dead. His body will come popping up in the last reel somewhere. Eyes gouged out, fingers cut off, teeth knocked out. See, the police are always off track with this shit. If they watch prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. A very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. You just listened to a scene from Scream. Uh, looking forward to getting into this. Now, real quick, JD, before I jump into the review, I know we talked about this a few weeks ago. We haven't had one, but I've got to shut your big yapper for the day. Okay, horrible. Okay, and it's actually going to go to two people. And I want to throw a big old shut your big yapper to Justin Timberlick and also to David Crumholtz, who are now shaming Woody Allen after starring in his movie. So I think that's bullcrap. You're not going to sign on and take a big old paycheck and then slam the guy after the movie comes out. You can't tell me you didn't know that he was into little girls uh, because every movie he's ever made is about him, an older man, dating younger women. (laughs) So you two can shut your big yappers. You got anything this week? Oh man! So the, so we're just going to be angrily calling out people and telling them to shut their big yappers. Ah, <laughs> uh, you don't have to angrily call somebody out, but that just got my blood boiling, and I was just like, you know what? Shut your big yapper. We need a little little intro tune for that segment. I'll work on it. You know what? I got to shut your big yapper. You didn't make an intro tune for that segment, Kyle. You shut your big yapper. <laughs> Let's jump into some review. Uh, so the film begins with the phone ringing, and a young Drew Barrymore answers the phone here. Um, first initial reaction to Drew Barrymore here. What do you think about her? Uh, how old is she right now in this in this role? Like not not her character as an actress, because. Well, as an actress, she's going to be playing a high school student, so I would assume like seventeen or eighteen. No, I know. How old is she? Oh, okay. I, yeah, I must have misunderstood you. Okay, so she is 42 years old, so she's 21 in this movie. Okay, because I'm not fully buying her as a high school student. I went to high school, okay? I've met plenty of other high school students, and they didn't look like her. Are you saying Drew Barrymore's hot? I'm saying I'm saying she's at peak beak. <laughs> 
peak beak. She scores high on the stroke ability test. Showing. Now, in all seriousness, I really liked her. I've liked her in a bunch of things, but I thought she was really good. Have you ever seen Never Been Kissed? I always thought, man, I'd like to be the one kissing her. So you would kiss her, you wouldn't beak her? Well, I'd do both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it'd be yeah. all. <laughs> you need to learn about the birds and the bees, my friend. Actually, I think I would, if, if it were to happen, I think I would pull a gym from American Pie and just go, <laughs> and you know, you know the rest. Yeah, twice. You did it twice, buddy. Uh, so anyway, the caller, the caller says he must have called the wrong number. She hangs up. He calls right back again, and he just wants to talk with her. Kind of strikes up a conversation here. He says, I just want to talk. She says they have 900 numbers for that. She hangs up again. Phone rings. Obviously the same person again. He wants to know, what's her favorite scary movie? She says Halloween. Casey's now getting into the conversation. When the caller wants to know her name, um, he says, I don't, I just want to know who I'm looking at. And she starts to get freaked out. She hangs up uh, on the caller again. This time the caller is getting really pissed because she keeps hanging up on him. And when he calls back this time, he screams, if you hang up on me, I'm going to gut you like a fish. So Casey runs to lock all the doors. She wants to know what he wants. He says he wants to see what her insights look like. What do you think of this beginning part of this opening scene? It's kind of creepy, the phone call part. It really, It is a creepy scene. It's a great setup. It really... It creates an intimate level of horror between a character and then an unseen presence. It's just the phone, you know? Right. It makes the phone scary. Which is why color ID sales tripled after this movie. She says that her boyfriend will be here any second, and he's big, and he plays football, and he'll kick your ass. The caller says his name wouldn't be Steve, would it? Casey is now hysterical. The caller tells her to turn the patio lights on. And we reveal Steve tied up and gagged with blood all over his forehead. He tells her he wants to play a game. It kind of sounds like Saw. Uh, he makes her turn off the lights on the patio. The first question is, who is the killer in the movie Halloween? Since it's her favorite movie, this should be an easy one. She gets it right. It's Michael Myers. The second question is, name the killer in Friday the 13th. She screams right away, Jason, Jason, Jason. I've seen that movie 20 goddamn times. And the, the caller says, no. Well, if you knew, if you did see it 20 times, you would know that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer and Jason didn't show up until the sequels. Lucky for her, there's a bonus round, but poor Steve is out. Casey turns on the lights and Steve is just guts spewing everywhere. It's pretty gruesome. Uh, the final question is, what door am I at? There's two main doors, the front door or the patio door. She says she can't answer the question, and she won't answer it. The caller says, your call, and a chair gets hurled through the patio doors, breaking the glass. Casey runs to the kitchen, grabs a butcher knife. As we go into the kitchen, the it's filled with smoke because she had put some popcorn on the stove. Inside, we have our first shot of Ghostface here, albeit from a bit of a distance, but what, what's your first impression here of the killer? He's pretty haunting. I, I always like the way that he looks. I think it's, you know, it's the classic black with the white mask, so right. you can sneak around very creepily, but it's very human and very supernatural at the same time. It kind of scared the bejeebus out of me. Also easy to take on and take off if you wanted to get around different places. So she's outside now. She's kind of backed out of the uh, the door toward the patio, 
and we see a car making its way down the road. Casey doesn't see Ghostface in the house. She looks down, and when she turns back up and looks at the window, he's standing right there. Or she say, it is standing right there. Breaks the glass. Casey gets away. She runs toward the, the car, but Ghostface catches her and stabs her in the chest and in the throat. Casey's being choked when she kicks Ghostface in the nuts, which, as we remember from Monster Squad, there's only one way to kill a werewolf, but if you want to get it down for a little while, just kick it in the nuts. Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> and that's episode three if you want to go back and listen to it in the archives. So anyway, she tries to yell as she sees her parents walking into the house, but she can't because her vocal cords have been damaged from the knife. She watches them go inside. She's kind of whispering like, I'm dead. And obviously they can't hear her. Ghostface pushes her down. And we see he does take off the mask, so she knows who kills her. Um, but we don't get to see who it is, and she gets stabbed to death. The parents go inside to a smoky house. They yell for her. The mom gets on the phone to dial the police. But what she hears on the other line is Casey's lifeless body being dragged and just kind of like gurgling. The phone finally cuts out. The mom is told to run next door and get some help. Um, geez, I can't remember from the, uh, from my notes earlier, but what, what's the name of the family next door? Run to the who? Mackenzie. There you go. Yeah. Run to the Mackenzie's, which is a shout out to Halloween as the kids are sent to the Mackenzie's after, uh, Jamie Lee Kerr sends them over. The mom runs outside to go get help. When we hear her scream bloody murder and the camera goes outside, we see Casey being hung by her neck with her guts coming out of her stomach. And she's in the front tree in the yard. And that's our opening scene here. Pretty gruesome. I, I can't think of a better opening scene in recent memory. What do you think of this? All right. I want to I want to come at this from two angles. The one I want to say as a viewer, yeah, it's gruesome. It's terrifying. It's it sets the tone for the whole movie. It's brutal. It's scary. It's it's good. It's freaking good but at the same time i want to call it out for its lackluster ability of really telling a story in a space okay like realistically how did they string her up to that tree i remember being 12 years old and thinking like when did they have the time to hoist her body up and to tie it around the tree and yeah get it there and then where do they run to their car do they do they hang up the phone like That's logistically a, like not, none of it had that's a good question but if we go back to our interesting facts, we'll remember that they had to make seven or nine different cuts to this movie. So there may have been a scene where we watched her get hung that they had to cut out to get that rated R. Oh, okay, fine, fine. I'll, I'll give you award you a point back for that. But I still think that, and it's it's a theme that like will come up from me throughout the movie. Is it? It seems they cut a lot of corners on explanation, really putting together a logical explaining of the space where the horror movie exists. Okay. Like, even so, like, what is this house that she's in? There's so many doors and windows, and she's <laughs> running around, and she's locked, and she locks, like, 18 different sets of things. <laughs> Why are they all unlocked? It's, it's yeah. you know, and I know that it's playing on the horror movie tropes where the doors are always up. You have to lock the door. You can't answer the door. You don't answer the phone. It has to, those things have to exist for them to really like turn it upside on its head. But mm -hmm. to me, a lot of that is kind of, I wonder, is that, is that them being convenient or is that just it being lazy? Okay. Now those are all good points. We're going to flash to a bedroom where we meet Sydney for the first time. She's typing away at a computer. 
which I found funny for 1996 just because it's still at like its infancy with like online and stuff like that. Um, first impression of Nev Campbell <laughs> with with that whatever she's wearing. Uh, not so much what she's wearing, but like what what do you? I guess what do you think about? No, no, her? no, no. That's that's what I'm I'm going <laughs> to focus on is that little gown she's wearing. What is that? How old is she? <laughs> I don't know. Apparently she's 12, but she's playing an 18-year-old here. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> this was really her breakout role. Now, she was in The Craft, which also came out in 1996, a little bit earlier in the year, uh, with our one of our favorites, Faruza Balt, who I saw at the convention. She has not aged well. Um, that also That movie also has a big character from this movie. Her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, Skeet Ulrich, is in that. So she hears something, and she goes over to the window, and her boyfriend is climbing through it. kind of startles her a little bit. This is a nod to uh, the movie that Wes Craven originally directed, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Apparently, at some point, somebody comes through the window in that movie, although I don't remember it. Any thoughts on that? Do you remember that scene? Um, I vaguely. It's been it's been a few years since I've watched that. Okay. I know it's going to be up near our list to to review soon. Yep, we'll we'll get to that at some point. So anyway, his name is Billy Skeet Ulrich is the actor. Um, so because she screamed when he came through <laughs> the window, we hear her dad knocking on the door. Um, he has to hide behind the bed. She goes to the door and denies screaming at all. And then her dad explains that he's leaving tomorrow, uh, which is a plot point. Um, so kind of thrown off here, and it's not a big deal when he says it, but it's going to come into play later on. Anyway, she closes the door. Billy says their relationship started off hot and heavy, headed for an NC-17 rating, but now things have changed, and now they're more made for TV. I love the movie references here and the ratings. What, what did you think of that? It's definitely a clever piece of writing, especially like when you yeah. mentioned earlier how... Scream was originally intended for, not intended, but was coming out at an NC-17 rating and had to get slashed and knifed down into the rated R. They start making out. Billy's definitely looking the beak here. Um, she cuts him off after a few seconds, and she's going to make him leave. He says, you know what you do to me? Blue balls. Well, he doesn't say blue balls. I added that part, but she tells him she appreciates the gesture, and he leaves. Before he gets out the window completely... She wants to know if he would settle for a PG-13 relationship. And he's like, huh? And she flashes him. He just smiles and says, oh, my God, you're a tease. And uh, we go next day. There's some news reporters all over the place at the high school. Sydney walks along the sidewalk. And we see our first uh, shot of Courtney Cox here is Gail Weathers. Um, Courtney Cox, famous for the show Friends, um, which was a huge hit at that time. And I believe their second season. Or third season at that point. And we meet Sydney's best friend as well, Tatum Riley, played by Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan's been in the press a lot lately. She's kind of at the beginning or at the forefront of this woman's movement and calling out all the creeps in Hollywood. Any thoughts on her? Uh, not anymore after you mentioned that she was on the forefront of that whole thing. I don't want her calling me out for making inappropriate comments. Quite skilled of an actress you are, milady. <laughs> She was in another movie in 1996 that I, I think you're probably a fan of, because I am. Uh, she was in Biodome. So Biodome and Scream in one year. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a, you know, I haven't seen Biodome in many a year, so I'm not going to say hey or nay about it. Okay. 
Well, I'm going to throw this out there just because she's been quoted a bunch of times saying this was her favorite experience as an actress. She had the most fun on this set, so clearly nothing bad happened. Tatum explains they found Casey Becker hanging from a tree with her insides on the outside. They say it's the worst sense, and she pauses, and she doesn't finish her sentence. She's about to refer to Sydney's mother, who had died a year earlier. We go into the classroom next. The teacher tells Sydney, it's your turn next. And we see one of the cops ready to escort her down to the principal office, where we meet Principal Arthur Hembry. He's uncredited in this movie, but he's played by the Fonz, Henry Winkler. How much did you enjoy watching the uh, the Fonz in this? Dude, he is such a creep in this movie. He really I is. Hope we, I hope we talk about some of it as it goes on, but I mean... He's touching students. He's threatening students. He, he tries to stab them and he makes fun of them. Like, he's just the world's worst principal. And reading into it, he was uncredited because producers thought that he may take away from the younger talent. So he's not credited, but you can find him on the IMDb. Uh, Deputy Dewey is also in there for questioning. He's played by David Arquette. Still relatively active these days. He's not in like a ton of stuff, but. Man, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, I feel like David Arquette was like a superstar. Were you, were you a fan of his at all? He was a world champion, man. Well, WCW world champion for like a, a day, I think. Literally, he was a world champion, and he's still world class in my book. Sheriff Burke begins to ask a question. Cut to outside the lobby. Sydney's group of friends are hanging out by the water fountain. We meet the rest of the cast here. Again, Billy, her boyfriend. Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy. Stuart, played by Matthew Lillard, Stu for short. How great is this young cast? I feel like there's so many good good people in these roles. Yeah, I agree, and I am such a huge Matthew Lillard fan to this day. I love his performance in this movie. Like, he nails so good. it. What, what would you say is your favorite Matthew Lillard movie? Scooby-Doo. Okay. He's not, a, he's not a bad Shaggy. I don't think he's like the greatest Shaggy ever. Um, Name a better Shaggy. The original Shaggy? (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't me. (laughs) But uh, no, I really like it. For some reason, I I really like Without a Paddle. I I like that movie. I think I connect to it because I've got some really close friends that I stay in touch with. And, you know, if one of them died, I could imagine going on a trip in their name. So, um, yeah. That's so sweet of you to say, Kyle. I didn't realize you thought of me like that. Oh, you're not part of that group. Anyway, (laughs) Stuart is explaining the bodies of Casey and Steve were hollowed out. It would take a real man to do that. Sydney wants to know how someone could do it. Stuart begins to explain when uh, he gets cut off. And uh, he just, Sydney says, hey, Stu, didn't you used to date Casey? He says, yeah, for like two minutes. Tatum comes to his rescue and says he was with me last night. Randy says... Did he really put her liver in the mailbox? Because I heard they found it in the mailbox next to her spleen and pancreas. Tatum tells him to stop because she's eating. Billy looks annoyed that Stu keeps talking, and Tatum wants him to shut up as well. So we end that scene there. What did you think of this in terms of, you know, what what Stu had to say? Because he gets pretty, he starts to get pretty detailed about how the killer would have done it. And then he's kind of cut off by Billy at one point. You know, little breadcrumbs that they're setting up. Uh, I think it's it does a good job of sh- sort of exploiting the relationship between all of the characters. And you've got the, the wide range of, of 
funny to serious and then just complete batshit crazy that Stu is. Absolutely. He's, cr- he's crazy. He's a sociopath even before, like, you find out how crazy he is. I like that Tatum kind of comes to the rescue and she's like, well, he was with me all last night, so it couldn't have been him. So we got to take him off the list of potential suspects at that point. Sydney gets home from school. She calls Tatum to see if she's going to come over to her house. She sits down and turns on the TV, and all the stations are talking about is the murder. She stops on the one with Gail Weathers, and she said, and Gail is saying, this isn't the first time the tiny town of Woodsboro has dealt with a murder. Just a year ago, Maureen Prescott was murdered. Sydney turns off the TV at that point when the picture of her mother comes on the screen. She lays down to take a nap. She wakes back up. It's now black outside. It's past 7 o'clock. The phone rings. Tatum apologizes for being late. She says she's on her way, but she's going to swing by the video store. Man, what would you give the to be able to swing by a video store these days? I would give $9.99 a month. Netflix, open up a video store, please. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? There's, I mean, honestly, why not? They, we talked about before. They have so much freaking money. Open up a video store. That would be such a baller move for them to start opening up movie stores after they put Blockbuster out of business. It really would. <laughs> Just them being like, well, remember when you should have bought us for $40 million and you passed? Yeah, we're worth over $100 billion now. The caller, uh, we get another phone call, and this time it's not Casey Becker. The caller says all the stuff is like straight out of a movie. Keep, Sydney keeps saying, yeah, very funny, Randy. Yeah, this is hilarious. The caller says... The question is not who I am, it's where I am. He says he's calling from the front porch. Sydney goes and goes to open the door. She says, I call your bluff. And when she opens the door, no one's there. And she looks around the porch. We don't see anything. It is kind of eerie, though, because she's kind of out in nowhere. But to your point a little bit earlier, she has a lot of doors in her house, too. This is not a tiny house. There's like there's back doors, side doors, closet doors. I mean, geez. Well, and this is another part, too, that sort of like confuses me because her house is in the middle of nowhere. Right. right? As was Drew Barrymore's house. Yep. But then there's still like this, the town and the school and this last scene, they were just out by this like little campus. What is that called? The middle of a campus. It's a thing. Uh, the quad? quad? Yeah, they're like in yeah. this quad area. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and the, to me, it's just like there's no rhyme or reason to like the layout. There's no purpose to where they are and why. Whereas take a movie like Halloween, you're always watching the characters walk from one place to the other. You get to see the layout of the neighborhood. You know how close yeah. the houses are. You know where the school is. You know where the hardware store is. And this is just like a jumble of like random locations that are yeah. just all these big set pieces that exist in their own world. And yeah, I, mean, I always get frustrated by that. Even later in the film at Stu's house, I mean, he's in the complete middle of nowhere. And again, another giant house. So apparently everybody in Woodsboro is absolutely loaded and they all have about 10 acres of land. I mean, that's that's what you would have to assume. Um, so back to the, uh, the situation here, Sydney says, okay, Randy, you got me. Tell Tatum to hurry up. Caller says, if you hang up on me, you'll die just like your mother. So Sydney runs inside and the killer actually attacks her from the closet door. They scramble on the floor. Sydney kicks him off. She runs upstairs and shuts her door and the killer can't get in. She tries to call 911, but it's off the hook. 
So she starts typing up a message to 911 on her computer. I guess, would this have been AOL Instant Messenger? I mean, was that even a thing in 96? Yeah, but if the phone's off the hook, how is she getting a dial-up modem line? Ooh, good freaking point, man. I don't need to be a Debbie Downer, but... Because, I mean, she... I mean, she gets through, too. Like, the the responder starts messaging her right away, with, which is also unrealistic for at that time. You had to wait about 10 minutes just to get logged into something. And she's been downstairs sleeping, so she obviously wasn't upstairs on her computer. Another plot hole. Anyway, she types to 911 that the killer, and then as soon as she starts typing up, the killer leaves, and Billy appears in her window. He says he heard screaming. He comes in, gives her a hug. As he stands up from uh, the window... A cell phone drops from his pocket onto the floor. Sydney sees it. She starts backing away from him. She goes out the door, runs down the stairs. When she opens the door, it's Ghostface standing there. Except it's just Deputy Dewey holding the mask up. What did you think of this scene here? I like the little cheap fake out that that happens with. Yeah, the, um, she gets down to the, the bottom, and yeah, Deputy Dewey's holding it up like right in her face. It's a good cheap scare. It's to me, it's an earned cheap scare. Because uh, you're expecting him to be there, and it's not him, and it's just uh, it's just Deputy Newfie. Well, it's Halloween. Everybody's entitled to one good scare. They arrest Billy Loomis. Dewey tells the sheriff that he caught him, and it's and it's Billy. Billy yells for Sydney as he's put into the cop car and driven off. Tatum arrives. She's told that she can't be there. She tells Dewey she's staying with us. Her dad is out of town. Dewey says, well, does mom know about this? Yeah, doofus. I love that she calls him out right in front of everybody. Gail arrives. She yells at the cameraman, Jesus, the camera. And he says his name isn't Jesus in the background, which I thought was funny. The police drive off to with Sydney. Tatum walks to her car and Gail tries to pry information out of Tatum. The cameraman finally appears after everyone is gone. Gail says, Kenny, I know you're about 50 pounds overweight, but when I say hurry... Please interpret that as move your fat tub of lard ass now. And she storms off. So there is definitely some comedy in this movie. I thought that part was hilarious. I think I got tangled in my phone cord there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a funny movie. And the, that's what they get from getting actors who are not just bottom of the barrel. They get performances. Definitely. Even, Kenny, even Kenny the cameraman gives a good performance. Shout out to that guy. Yeah, what's he up to? I'll have to look it up. Say, I'll, I'll let you know on the next time we talk about Kenny. I'll have it ready. So in the police station, Dewey's asking about her father's whereabouts. She looks over in the sheriff's office, and Billy is in there getting interrogated. He's kind of just staring at her, which is kind of creepy. The sheriff wants to know why he had a cellular telephone. He says everyone has one now. He also wants to know what he was doing over there. He said he was just coming to see her. She mentioned you show up, you showed up in her window last night as well, which his lawyer looks at him like, you didn't tell me that. Did you happen to stop by Casey Becker's house on the way over too? Billy says, Sheriff, I didn't kill anybody. Sheriff says they have, they have to hold him until they get the phone records. And Billy turns again and stares at Sydney. Gail goes live by the police station. She's denied access into it. They take Billy away and he looks at Sydney and says, you know me as he's getting carried away. Dewey enters, said they found the outfit, they sell it everywhere, it's impossible to track the purchase, they won't have the phone records for Loomis until tomorrow. Uh, I just realized this now, that his last name is Loomis, as in Dr. Loomis, that's another tie-in to Halloween. Dewey wants to know if the sheriff thinks he did it, 
Sheriff says, 20 years ago, I would have said, no way. But these kids today, damned if I know. What did you think of Billy kind of staring at her several times? And then, you know, as he's getting carried off to the prison cell for the night, he's like, you know me, you know me. Look at me. And she's, she's not responding at all. He's kind of a creep. Like, he scares me, like, as is Skeet Ulrich. He's, he's a great actor, but yeah. he gives, he gives a, he does a great job of, of, he's saying the right things, but he's doing them in the wrong way, so you don't really know how to trust him or if you can trust him. But he right. kind of seems like he's suspect number one. He does definitely come off as suspect for sure. Uh, obviously, the cell phone dropping out of his pocket is a huge part of that. Tatum pressures Dewey to leave. She starts arguing with him. He says, what did mom tell you? When I wear this badge, you treat me like a man of the law. She says, okay, Deputy Dewey boy. Well, we're ready to leave. And he gets really embarrassed as the other cops are laughing at him. And they go out the back door where Gail finds them and the cameras start to approach. She's turned away by Tatum at first, but Sydney says, it's okay. She's just doing her job. She asks Gail how her book is coming. She says it'll come out in the fall. And Sydney turns to leave. Gail says, I'll send you a copy. And Sydney turns around and lands a ferocious right hand to the face, knocking her down. Dewey runs in and says, oh, nice shot. And Sydney calls her a bitch, and they get into the car and leave. What do you think of this? So it's another level of tension that we're playing with now that we have we have Gail Weathers, which is a spectacular name, by the way. Like, like Nick Spritz. Yep. And also, just so you know, Gail is like a, I guess, like a synonym for the word weather or like meteorologist. Which she makes a joke of later, saying, well, look at my name, Gail Weathers. I sound like a meteorologist. Anyway, she should be. I'm full of these stupid facts today. Yeah. Yeah, you are. I don't know what that meant. That sounded insulting. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's keep going here, kid. Um, it's, it's cool to see the second level of tension that starts to develop between the characters, especially since, you know, like or love um, Nev Campbell or like or love Courtney Cox. Um, they work well together. Yeah, I love and this. Watching them fight is fun. I love this next scene. We're in Tatum's bedroom, and she keeps reacting to the punch, kind of playing it over and over again. She's like, "I'll send you a copy." Bam! Bitch went down. <laughs> so she's more excited about Sydney knocking out Gail than anybody. Uh, the phone rings. Um, her mother comes in and says it's for Sydney. So Sydney goes and answers it in the other room because it's 1996. People, we don't hand somebody a cell phone. There's these things called cords. And you have to stay within a reasonable distance. So she's got to go to the living room. Um, the, she answers and the, the person says, hello, Sydney. Poor Billy, boyfriend, is an innocent guy. Didn't stand a chance with you. Looks like you fingered the wrong guy again. That sounded gross. Uh, Dewey comes running out from the bedroom, uh, but the killer's already hung up. I couldn't help but laugh at this scene because of Scary Movie, where Dewey comes running out. and He's like, I told you not to bother me when I'm cleaning my room. And he's in his underwear. With like, his little vacuum cleaner. <laughs> he's got the vacuum. So I literally, I cannot take this scene seriously because of that. There's nothing wrong with that. No. Next day, we hear the news. Sydney Prescott's daughter of Maureen Prescott was brutally killed last year by convicted murderer Cotton Weary. She was the key witness whose testimony put him away. We get our first look at Cotton here. It's really one of our only looks at Cotton. What do you think of this subplot in the writing here? Bringing in the cotton weary. All right, I'm going to go ahead and admit to me, I always get jumbled and confused by what the hell is going on with this subplot. And yeah. I get that they're trying to give, they're trying to, 
take away from where you get the background story, like mm-hmm. how they did in Halloween or how they did in Friday the 13th, where you, here's all the background stuff. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to the story. And they try to interweave it in with the plot that's going, which is right. a much better way of storytelling. But to me, it just sort of gets lost in the shuffle. And I, I'm always left being like, wait, what? What exactly happens? Who killed the mother? Who, why is Liv Schreiber in this movie? Like, <laughs> Why isn't Liv Schreiber in this movie? No, no he's cotton wary. I know, I'm just saying. Why would oh, he be? Okay, good. <laughs> no. Why isn't he in it more? <laughs> so Sidney gets out of Dewey's cop car and a reporter comes over to ask how it feels to almost be brutally murdered. Would you like to take a guess at who this reporter is? And I'll, tell, I'll give you one hint. She's from a very scary movie. A very popular scary movie. Is it Linda Blair? It is Linda Blair from The Exorcist. I thought that was cool that they got her in this movie. And I I have to admit, I did not recognize her because The Exorcist was 1973 and this is 1996. She's not a little kid anymore. Uh, That's true. I was excited to watch her after I knew she'd be in it. Once again, she delivers. Yeah, always. She's got a whole seven seconds. I hope she got paid well. Dewey blocks the reporter and says, she's just here to get an education and escorts her to the uh, to the school. Sydney walks over to Gail, who's sitting in her van and wants to talk. But off the record, Gail makes her stop several feet away so she doesn't get hit again. Gail says, fuck that. I'm not doing anything off record. Sydney says, you owe me one and you owe my mother. So Gail stops the cameraman from recording. Sydney wants to know why she had to write the book. Gail says, someone was going to write the book anyway. Might as well have been me. Plus, you got what you wanted. They're going to put him. Uh, they're going to gas him. They're going to put him away. Sydney says, you still believe he's innocent, don't you? Gail says, not one word of his story has ever changed. Uh, that night, Cotton was drunk, and he was sleeping with your mother, and she believes that someone planted blood in his car, framing him. And Sydney says, I saw him leave wearing his coat, and she says, you saw someone leave wearing Cotton's coat, but it wasn't him, and the killer is still on the loose. Gail asks Sydney if the killer is still on the loose, and... Sydney doesn't say anything. She says, oh my gosh, you have doubts now. This is a cool scene for me. I, I thought this, this kind of sets up the fact that, um, you know, maybe these murders are tied together for the first time. Yeah, I like that, that how they develop that second layer to it all. It's, it's definitely, it comes along well. And, you know, it, the ending wraps up nicely. But in the meantime, there's a lot of confusion to me. Kenny thinks they should start rolling and run with the story. But Gail tells him they need proof. We can actually save a man's life here. Kenny starts to smile like, that's really cool. Until she says, do you know what that could do for my book sales? So I love that she goes right back to that character. We don't want to love her too much. Inside the school, a kid dressed as a as the ghost face killer runs through the hall screaming. Sydney kind of covers up and starts crying a little bit and runs down the hall. But she runs right into old Billy. Billy says he, he has a girlfriend that would rather accuse me of murder than touch me. And they argue about Sydney's mother dying and how he doesn't know why she can't move on. And Sydney obviously pissed off and, and she leaves after that. But this is this is a weird, I guess the, the writing was a little weird. Or maybe it's just them developing Billy as like somebody that's a real asshole. But like, how could he not be sympathetic to the fact like her mother was killed a year ago and she's having a hard time moving on? <laughs> he holds that against her. Right. Kind of suspect. Um, the principal in the next scene is lecturing the kids about wearing the mask and running down the hallway. He expels both the kids who say it's not fair. And 
he kind of goes right back at him. His fair would be cutting you up by the insides and leaving you for dead. And this is really creepy. As you mentioned earlier, probably not the best principal I've ever seen. Yeah, he needs to be careful with the way that he treats his students. He kind of shoves them too, doesn't he, at one point? He, he gets kind of mean. I mean, yeah. from the scene earlier where he caresses Nev Campbell's cheek. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Stepping over He's, the line. He's the Fonz. What can you do? Hey. Sydney goes into the bathroom and overhears two girls. One girl says, what's her problem? She's got her own bubble butt boyfriend, Billy. And the other girl says, maybe she's a slut like her mother. Everyone knows she was a tram. Sydney is just sitting there listening to the whole thing. They leave. She walks out. She starts wiping her face in the mirror. She looks under the stall. No one's there. Um, then she hears another sound. And she looks under again. And we still don't see anything. And then as she's kind of looking in the mirror, we see two feet step off of the toilet onto the ground. And then we see the black robe or whatever he's wearing go down as well. And she starts to, to try and make a run for the door. Ghostface comes at her. She dodges the killer and runs out. So she kind of dodges a bullet here. Officer Dewey enters the school. Gail approaches Dewey right away. She flirts a little bit with Dewey here. And she comments on how he looks young. Over the loudspeaker, Principal Hembry announces school is out and the police have issued a curfew starting immediately for this evening. Gail comments on the curfew. Before they leave, Dewey mentions how she's much prettier in person. So we've got a little bit of back and forth here with Gail and Dewey. I don't know if she's just using him or there's actually some sexual attention. What do you think? I definitely always took it that she was trying to get something from him, that she was using sure. him, that she's taking advantage of him and... You know, he'll always be Deputy Doofy to me and that I always think he's incapable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, that's definitely how I always read it. Okay. Tatum and Sydney walk to their car. Stu runs over and thanks Sydney for helping get them out of school. Stu wants to have a big party tonight. And they're not, the girls aren't too sure about it, but Tatum talks her into it, says it would be fun. Stu says he's totally got her covered if anybody tries to mess with her. Principal Hembry is looking in the mirror next with the ghost face mask on. Hanging in the closet is a jacket of his from Happy Days, the same one he wore. Uh, I don't know if anybody caught that, but uh, I thought that was a nice touch to put the Fonz's jacket in his closet. Uh, a knock at the door. He runs outside to see who it is. He walks in the hallway, says, who is it? The janitor answers, it's just him, and he's dressed like Freddy Krueger in a sweater. Of course, Wes Craven directed Nightmare on Elm Street, so this is a nod to that. Embry goes back into the office. He pulls open the closet door again. No one's in there. He shuts the door, and then the door to the office closes, and the killer emerges behind it, stabbing Principal Hembry and killing him, and no more Fonz. Goodbye, Principal Hembry. Well, let me ask you, this is another one of those logistic logistical scenes that I don't understand. <laughs> Why do they kill the principal? I don't know. I guess they felt the need that they, they had to kill him. I, 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 your guess is as good as mine, to be honest. I have no idea. No, I, I don't mean to be like, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse every time I point a finger and say, you know, what is this? What is this? But movies have to be held accountable for everything that they do. There has to be a reason for why it's done. And there's instances in this movie, which it's a great scene. Don't get me wrong. Like, I love watching him get killed because he's kind of a creeper. He's kind of mean. And he sort of, you almost feel like, yeah, that's what you get for being the asshole principal, you know? Right. But even so, like the scene in the bathroom, you know, like this is the second time that, that they've come after Nev Campbell. And 
what's their end game as the killers? Are they just screwing with her? Are they messing with her head right now? Are they actually planning on killing her or those botched attempts? You get what I'm they saying? can't it kill her because like, she's a virgin, so she keeps outsmarting him right now. So that's what you think it is. You think that, you know, looking at it from like a, you have to look at the pieces that you have to make the puzzle that you want. Right. You, so you think that they are trying to kill her and, and the killer in ghost phase and his best laid plan, he would have killed her <laughs> right there, right then and there in the school. <laughs> when you frame it like that, no. Um, I'm just, yeah. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, he does have a knife, so I can't imagine he's going to be like, he's going to catch her and then not do something to her. But okay, she doesn't seem to be able to get caught. She keeps kicking him off or slamming doors on him and by the making it out by the chin on her hair. Her virginity isn't keeping her alive, but I'm just saying, like, what's the payoff of that? Like, what's You have to exist in a horror movie in a space where you can live or die. It can't be she's just going to live because she's the main character. Which is everything that they did with Drew Barrymore in the beginning when you take your your biggest name star in the movie and you kill her off right away. You kind of set the precedence to the rules that are invented for horror movies don't necessarily apply anymore. Right. We're at Tatum's house next. Her and Sid are sitting outside talking. Sidney says, if Cotton was having a romance with my mom, why didn't he say that in court? Tatum says, because that's rumor and you can't really prove it. Sidney says, if Cotton didn't do it, and the killer is still out there. You know what? What do we do? Like she, she's starting to you know second guess herself. And Tatum kind of comes to the rescue, and she's like, "He did do it. He's going to get what he deserves." And they go back inside. Over in the wooded area, Ghostface is watching them, and we actually see him. Uh, and he kind of just runs by, and he's got his knife in his hand. I, it, this was this was let's just call it what it is. This was stupid. Why why did they do that in in the middle of daylight? He's not Michael Myers. He's not scary to look at from a distance. It was. It was. This was cheesy. I, I'm not going to disagree with you that it, that it's it is cheesy and it is kind of pointless. But it, it it throws you off the scent of who you think that the killer could possibly be. Because sure. what's the next scene? I just think if if they were gonna, I mean, this is a, another nod to Halloween. They should have done from point of view. They should have done from like him sitting in the in the bushes just looking at them. That's what that would have been scarier than just like him popping up for two seconds and he's like, Hey right, I'm out of here. And he just scoots out. I like that impression. That was a good impression. Thanks. Inside the video store, we've got Randy and Stu. I want to stop for a minute. I mean, God, how much does this make you miss video stores? Like as soon as this came on, I was like, damn. Friday night, I just go grab two, three movies, spend probably four hours there picking them out. Overpay for some popcorn, probably some candy. Like, that's that's what I miss about movie stores. You could just hang out there. It was an experience. Kids are missing out these days, man. I see well, him, shit. I see him looking at movies at Redbox. I'm like, you don't even know. Yeah, crowded no into a little corner at a grocery store. That's just miserable. Yep. That's how I discovered, like, the whole genre of horror. Was I could go through and I could see hundreds and hundreds of movies. That's how I got into Monster Squad. If there's no have, if there's no blockbuster, there's no Monster Squad these days. I truly believe that. I agree with you in much the same way. I mean, it's a dying art, art form of what uh, movie stores were. It's yeah. the same with video arcades, and it's the same with bowling alleys. I mean, it's these places where you could go and hang out, do something unathletic, and feel good <laughs> about yourself. Geeks assemble! The Stu wants to know if Randy's going to make it to his party. Randy points out that Billy's standing in the horse section. Isn't that poor taste? Somebody standing in the horse section that's wanted for murder or that we could be a murder suspect. 
Randy says this is standard horror movie rules. Stu wants to know what his reason what his reason would be. Randy says maybe she wouldn't have sex with him, which is true. He wouldn't. She wouldn't. She denied him. Stu laughs in his face, and uh, he thinks Stu thinks it's her father. Why can't the cops find her pops? Randy says he's dead. That's why. We're gonna find out he's been you know killed, and we'll find him in some bush somewhere. And Randy says there's a formula to it. A very simple formula. I'm telling you, everyone is a suspect. And he turns around and bumps right into Billy. Billy says, how do we know you aren't the killer? Randy admits if this were a scary movie, he would definitely be the prime suspect. I love this writing here. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's laying out, like, the horror movie rules. What What did you think of this? Yeah, this is a good example of, of taking the tropes and analyzing them and, and flipping them around because... You know, as he's laying out the rules and he's pointing fingers at who could be the suspect, Billy responds with, why wouldn't you be a suspect? You know, like... He's like, like I would. <laughs> I'd be the exactly. number one suspect. You're, now you're getting it. Yep. Next thing we show different stores and coffee houses closing early for the day. Dewey's car pulls up to the police station. Tatum and Sydney go into the grocery store. As they're talking, or actually before they go in the grocery store, uh, Sydney is asked... Who would play her in a movie? Dewey says he sees her as a young Meg Ryan. Sydney says with her luck, it would just be Tori Spelling. Funny enough, in the sequel, they make a movie about this movie, and Tori Spelling was cast. I love that now. That's such <laughs> a good payoff for the, for the sequel when the Stab movies come off. It's so good. Oh, I forgot that they're called Stab. I love that. I'm going to watch number two tonight. I'm excited. <laughs> number two. <laughs> Dewey goes over to the police chief, and he's eating an ice cream cone. The chief tells him those calls came from Sydney's father. They're going to put out a search for him. Dewey, eating his ice cream cone the whole time, uh, is just instructed to stay close to Sydney and to not let her out of his sight. Later in the evening, we pull up to the party. Now, keep in mind, we're only about halfway through this movie and we're to the final scene here. Gail is following Dewey in the van behind, and he drops Sid and Tatum off at the party. He tells them to have fun, but not too much fun, or he'll bust them. Gail parks her van in the back, and she's scared by Dewey here as he kind of pops out of nowhere and wants to know what she's doing in these parts. And Gail says she goes where the story is. She thinks there, there might be something here. Gail wants to know if she can join him, because he's going to go inside the party. She grabs a small pocket camera out of the van from Kenny, and we go inside. Inside, Randy is taking a poll on which movie to watch. Sydney wants to know why Jamie Lee Curtis is in all of these. Randy says that's because she's the Scream Queen. Ironically enough, years later she would star in a TV show that's currently still on called Scream Queen. The doorbell rings. Dewey and Gail enter. Tatum wants to know why she's here, referring to Gail. And Dewey says, because she's with me. And he starts giggling. Um, so Dewey's looking to be. Sydney pulls Dewey aside, wants to know if they found his father. And he tells her, no, we're still searching. Anything you want to add to this scene? Or anything on Jamie Lee Curtis, maybe? I thought that was a nice nod to her. Yeah, the, the in-references that they, they tie in throughout this movie are really great. And to doing the Jamie Lee Curtis with all of the movies and to... to Pose it around this movie night is, I don't know, it just makes me really nostalgic for the good old days. Yeah, definitely. Tatum goes out into the garage. I have to comment on here, and then we'll leave it alone. She's wearing a skin-tight shirt. Those nipples she might could as well cut. not be wearing anything. You could cut glass. We'll just say that. We'll leave it there. Um, she's going to grab a handful of beers, and uh, the door kind of shuts behind her to the garage. 
She goes over to the door. It's locked. So she hits the garage door. It starts to open up. She gets a, gets about halfway up when the garage stops again. And she turns around and Ghostface is standing there. She says, hi, Randy. That's funny. And he shakes his head no. She walks over to him. And that's when he pulls out a knife and cuts her arm at first. Tatum kind of runs from him a little bit and then knocks him down with the freezer door. And then starts throwing beer bottles at him, hitting him. And the bottles are breaking. The door's still locked, so she runs back over and tries to get out through the animal door in the garage, uh, but she gets stuck about halfway through. So Ghostface opens up the garage, and she's going to get smashed to death here by the garage door and the the beam of the house. Pretty gruesome here when it makes that snapping sound. And then we just see her hanging there. What did you think of this uh, first kill scene here? At the house. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch one time on logistically between the door getting locked and then magically getting <laughs> unlocked for him and right. the garage door not having any safety precautions or mechanisms or the fact that he could get just just beat to shit with those glass bottles like right. I mean, he gets hit in the nads, he gets hit in the face like that's. Sh- I don't know that he's going to be as spry as he is after getting, you know, pegged like that. But uh, with that being said, it's, it's a really great and brutal scene. It's just, to me, poorly laid out. Sure. I do think because she's not really, she's not very big. She's probably like 120 pounds at the most, probably 110. I think the garage door could take her up. Okay. So well, that's, okay, that's fair. That's I'll, fair. I'll give it that. I, I appreciate I appreciate your counter argument. So, yeah. Potato penis. The party's leaving. Sydney's yelling for Tatum. Billy appears in the door, kind of startling both Stu and Sydney. Billy wants a moment to talk with Sydney, and Stu tells them to go upstairs into his parents' room and get some privacy. Randy walks over and says, What's Leatherface doing here? There goes my chance with Sydney. Gail enters the van. Kenny says, Damn it, I've got delay, and he guesses it's about 30 seconds. In the bedroom, Billy and Sydney sit down for a talk. Billy apologizes for being selfish. He apologizes, and so does Sydney, and she says it's from her past post-traumatic stress. She admits that she's lying to herself about who her mom really was, and she's worried that she's going to turn into her mom. Billy says it's like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, where she keeps having flashbacks from her father. Sydney says, well, this is real life, and Billy argues that it's all just one big movie. He starts touching her face, and they start kissing. Sydney makes a comment about why she can't why can't she be Meg Ryan or at least be in a good porno. Billy says, Are you sure? She says yes, and they start making out. What what do you think they do? Just cuddle or something? No, I think the Beak Express is here. It's arrived on time and Billy's Billy's gonna beak. I wonder how many listeners are going like what why do they keep talking about beaking? Should we give a little subtext to that? Maybe we should just do an episode all about beaking. <laughs> Go back to our Mighty Ducks episode. That's where the beaking began. <laughs> where the beaking began. <laughs> quack, quack, quack. Downstairs, the kids are watching Halloween. It's the scene where Michael Myers kills PJ Soul's boyfriend. The scene takes place after they've just had sex, and she sends him down to get some beer. Stu wants to know when we will get to see Jamie Lee Curtis's tits. Randy says, you don't see her tits until Trading Places in 1984. She was always the virgin in these movies. And she always used her brain to outsmart the killers. Randy says there are rules, people. And he stops the movie and starts explaining the rules. And he says you must, one must abide to successfully survive a horror movie. One, you can never have sex, which everybody boos. Two, you can never drink or do drugs, which they're pretty much all drinking. And three, 
Never, ever, under any circumstance, say you will be right back because you won't. Stu stands up and says, hey, I'm going to grab a beer. You want one? Randy says, sure. I'll be right back. Randy says, okay, I'll see you in the kitchen dead with a knife in your back. What do you think of this scene? Matthew Lillard, phenomenal performance. <laughs> it's funny, though, because they are all drinking. He's, you know, Jamie Kennedy is laying down the rules and then immediately breaking the rules and then engaging in the breaking of the rules by requesting another beer. So it's almost to the point where you can read it if, if you're, like, examining his character, still thinking he might be the bad guy, which they play at that a little bit. Sure. But, you know, like, obviously he's, he lays out the rules so he knows that he can break them, that he can drink the beer because he's above the rules. He made the rules. He is in control of the game. In the van, Gail and Kenny are watching the footage. A bang on the door scares them both. It's Dewey. He says, they just told me there's a car parked in the bushes down the street. You want to go check it out with me? Gail agrees to go. Back at the house, more people are leaving. Stu mentions that Tatum must have gotten pissed and bailed. Smash to the bedroom. Randy and Stu... I'm sorry. I say Randy and Stu are going at it. Um, obviously, it's Sydney and Stu are going at it. Not Randy and Stu. That's a whole different movie. Downstairs, Randy looks at the uh, obligatory tit shot. And back at the bedroom, Sydney has taken off her bra now to show Billy. So as he's watching the movie... She's kind of doing exactly what the movie is showing, which I thought was a, a nice little touch of editing. Pretty cool. A phone call downstairs. Randy answers it. Just like, uh-huh. Yeah. Whoa. And he says they found Principal Hembry gutted and hanging from the goalpost. And all the guys on the couch start cheering and say, let's go before they cut him down. And they leave the house and Randy stays to keep watching the movie here. Man, I don't, I don't care how much I hated my principal in high school. I don't think I would get excited about going to watch him, watch his guts spewing out on the football field. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I, I agree. To think that like they would get excited about that. Hell, let's and go! Right <laughs> when they know that there's a murder curfew in effect. Right. I don't know. High school is a lot different for me. <laughs> yeah, it was different for me too. That never happened. Dale and Dewey are looking for the car. Uh, Dewey's got his flashlight out. And they see the car speeding toward them from the party. Dewey has to pull Gale and himself out of the way as they jump into the, the weeded area, bushes. And Dewey lands on top of her and they get a little smooch in. And then Gale looks over and says, is that what you were looking for? And he's like, yeah, it was. No, there. She points him toward the car. Dewey says, damn it, that's Neil Prescott's car. What's he doing here? We have to get back. His acting was not the best in this scene, but I think it it, get, it drives the point home of what we what we need to get to the next plot. Cut to the bedroom again. Billy wants to know if she's okay. Assumingly, they just finished doing the nasty here. Uh, they're kind of putting their clothes on. Sydney wants to know who he called in the police station. Billy says, "You don't think it was? You still think it's me?" He wants to know what he has to do to prove he's not the killer. And behind him, Ghostface is approaching. Sydney goes, oh my god, Billy, watch out! And he gets uh, knifed right in the in the chest several times. When he turns around, he's all bloodied. He falls to the ground. The killer wipes the knife clean and starts going after Sydney, who again escapes and runs downstairs. But somehow, she gets cut off by Ghostface, who comes from like a separate stairwell. Is he like an Olympic sprinter? Is he Usain Bolt? This is what I'm talking about. The layout of their, their situations where they are, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, how does that happen? I mean, she's sprinting out the room, and he's apparently behind her on the ground because he missed her. 
And then somehow he got all the way around the other side of the house to the other room where he's meeting her, which would lead me to believe that if Billy's not the other killer, that there's actually three and not two. What would you say to that? I would say, hold on, I'm meeting a cracker. Oh, Polly want a cracker? (laughs) (laughs) Polly want a beep. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting thought, that there's a a third killer. Spoiler alert to all of our viewers who have yet to watch this movie and maybe haven't thought that there's even two killers. Right, yeah. I mean... Maybe there's no killers. Maybe (laughs) it's not ghost face, maybe it's ghost body. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just by the the way that he seems to be everywhere, I would just assume there's two. We don't know yet because we haven't finished it, but I'm thinking there's three now. She kind of goes backwards and runs to another room. She locks the door. She's in an attic, it looks like. Um, She goes to the window, and she gets her whole body out, and then when she turns back around... The killer grabs her hand, and she stumbles backward and lands on the boat uh, on the outside. Now, again, I know this is a movie, but you just landed on a boat. The only thing cushiony there is going to be a seat, but you're going to hit the top of the seat on with your back. It's like it, it almost seemed like she landed on a mattress. It was just like she just bounced out. She was like, well, I'm fine. I'm just going to keep running. What, any Anything to say to that, or do you not get caught up on this stuff? That one, I don't know. I mean, the fall's not that great. I would think that she's going to fall and get a gear shaft up her ass or something like that. But That's what I'm saying. Like, she's going to get poked with something. Falling I, I 20 agree. Feet. It's not an easy fall, and she takes it like a champ. Well, she's already been poked by Billy. What's that going to hurt? Um, <laughs> she looks... <laughs> She looks towards the garage, and we see Tatum dead. She starts crying, and she starts running out. Um, Randy's still inside watching Halloween, and he's watching the scene where the killer is right behind him, right behind Jamie Lee Curtis, and he's yelling at the TV, just turn around! While saying that, Ghostface is literally right behind him, about ready to stab him to death, and all he needs to do is turn around. Sydney pounds on the van door. Kenny lets her in, and they're about ready to watch Randy get killed on the tape delay. When Kenny goes, oh, shoot, tape delay. And he goes out, and they look at the front door of the house, and it's wide open. And then when he turns to the left, he gets his throat slashed and killed. Uh, Sydney slams the door and exit exits through, like, a small door between all the equipment and the back door of the van, escaping again. Dewey and Gail, actually, I'll stop there for a second. Anything you want to add to these scenes here? Yeah, but this time, at least, it feels that they're, they've are trying to go through with the actual killing. Like, it's not just yeah. a cheap scare. It's like they're they're pursuing her. They're hunting her down. It's not a just a, we tried, oh, well, let's let's go back to the drawing board and give it a, a better try tomorrow. Dewey and Gail approach the house. Dewey gives her the keys to his car. He tells her to lock herself in there and call the cops. Dewey enters the house, and we hear the sounds of Jamie Lee Curtis screaming in the background. Dewey calls out for Neil, Mr. Prescott, the Halloween theme is playing in the background, that part where it's like, dun, dun, dun. And uh, we're starting to pick up steam here in this script as well. Gail runs to the van and says, Kenny, I need the cellular. And she's looking at some dripping blood all over the van. And we realize Kenny's probably dead. So she gets in the van and starts to dial on her Zach Morris-looking cellular phone. She can't get any signal. Randy knocks on the door. And uh, she just turns and just nails him with the phone like three times in the face. Poor Randy. And then she starts driving and she's got blood all over her windshield. Kenny slides onto the windshield. And while driving, she says, Kenny, I'm sorry, but get the fuck off my window. And she swerves and he falls off. And then as she straightens out, she almost runs right into Sydney. 
who is standing in the road as well. So she swerves and crashes and flips her van in the process. I thought this was a cool scene. It kind of just built a lot of tension. Uh, we don't really have, like, the killer's not even chasing him. This is all just her own just being scared. Yeah, it's a big scene, too. Like, it's not like they're just running in the woods and tripping on logs. You know, it's, <laughs> it ups the ante a little bit. It yeah. causes, like you're, like you're saying, it's it's in her mind. It's all cerebral that she's going through and getting frightened by. And it's, you know, one one scary happens, and then the next scary happens, and another scary happens. And, you know, Randy and Kenny, and it's just like... You know, a whole, whole, whole crap load happened. So Sydney walks toward the house and she calls out for Dewey, who walks out the front door and says, Sydney. And then he collapses. And when he, when his body turns to the side a little bit, we see a knife hanging out of his back. Ghostface emerges from the house. He grabs the knife out of Dewey's back and he falls to the ground. Sydney runs to Dewey's car and locks the door, but Ghostface holds up the keys. So she's not going anywhere. And then he, he starts unlocking it at each door one by one. And she kind of jumps to lock them back. And as she's doing that, the back hatch slowly starts to open. She doesn't hear it. She grabs the CB radio and starts to radio in that they need help. And then we see Ghostface right behind her in the car now. And Sydney avoids getting stabbed again. And she rushes out of the car, runs back inside the house. Randy approaches from outside, and then also Stu does. And Stu is pleading with Sydney that Randy's the killer, and she needs to give him the gun. And Randy yells, no, it's it's Stu, he's lost his mind. And she slams the door in both of their faces here. And then Billy emerges from upstairs, and he kind of falls down the stairs a little bit here. And he uh, manages to get the gun from Sydney, who now trusts him, because he can't be the killer, because he just got stabbed. And he opens up the door and lets Randy in. And Randy says, Stu's gone mad. Billy says, well, we all go mad from time to time. And Randy's like, oh, shit. And Billy holds up the gun and shoots him. And Billy just flies into a table. And then Billy licks the blood and says, corn syrup. Same stuff they use in the movies. Stu enters. He has his voice box and says, see, it was all part of the game, Sydney." Um, so... What did you think of this scene? We finally know who the killers are. It's Billy and Stu. Did you know it all along? <clears throat> I personally didn't. You know, I was, you have, you suspect who you think it could be. I personally, one, wasn't ready for the, the two killers because you always think it could be two killers, which explains a lot of they're here, they're there, they're everywhere. Right. Um, it still doesn't satisfy the fact that he could have killed her in the cop car just now. Right. If all they want to do yeah. is kill her, he snuck up behind her. Why not just, you know, give her a, a nice beat to the back? Yeah, you know, Why I, punch her in the face? I think my first impression was, oh, Randy's the killer because he lets him in right away. But at that point, I was kind of questioning, maybe Billy isn't. And then as soon as he's like, well, I guess we all go mad from time to time. That's when I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's a great reveal. Yeah. She tells him they will never get away with it. Billy says, tell that to Cotton Weary. He was easy. Stu says, you watch a few movies, you take a few notes. Billy says, she wants a motive. I don't believe in motive, but, you know, we did your mom a favor. That woman was a slut who flashed her shit all over town, and we did her a favor. Billy says, how about this? Your mother was fucking my father. That's the reason why my mom left us. How's that for motive? Another plot turn. I did not remember this. I, I completely forgot that the reason Billy's doing this is because his her mom was cheating on his mother with his father. Yeah, that, to me, it's a convoluted subplot point that, like, 
it's all the backstory. If you could watch it all separately, maybe it'd add up. But I'm just kind of like, it's like, whoa, okay. Yep. Um, and I, I mean, they try to pull that out in the sequel a lot, but I don't know. It's kind of like, okay. Yeah. I, I, I could have done without that. I'm satisfied with just them being psychotic. Yeah, I agree. Stu says, now that you're not a virgin, you gave it up. Now you have to die. Those are the rules. We have a surprise. You're going to love this. And he goes in the back, and he comes back in with Sydney's father, who's gagged. He's got tape on his mouth. He puts the voice box in her father's pocket, and they explain that he's the prime suspect. He went on a killer spree, lost his mind, left everyone for dead except for us. We escaped, and then killed himself with a shot to the head. Uh, And then they start to stab each other to show that they've barely escaped murder themselves. Stu gets stabbed first. He screams in pain. And then he stabs Billy even harder, and Billy gets pissed at Stu and says that went a little too deep, and Stu gets stabbed again, but this time Billy gets him like two or three times. Um, Sydney calls them sick and says they've watched way too many movies, and Billy says don't blame it on the movies. Stu goes to untie her father, and uh, when he does, he says, "Uh uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. The gun is gone. I said it right here. And then they start arguing of where it could be when Gail enters and she says, I have a plan or I have a story. The reporter left for dead stumbles in and shoots the killers and saves the day. And Sydney says, I like that story. Billy, not too scared of her, just starts approaching her. He backs her into the room and then he kicks her right in the chest and sends her out the front door and she lands right next to Dewey. Billy wasn't afraid because the safety was on. She didn't take it off. The phone rings. The voice is clearly Sydney on the other line now because she's now escaped and she's hid. And she says she wants to play a game of guess who just called the cops. Billy goes to find her. Stu, who's now starting to bleed to death, picks up the phone and says, hello. And he, he wants to he tells Sydney that his motive was peer pressure. And Billy comes in and hits Stu in the head with the phone, and he screams, That, you dick, that hurt. Stu picks up the phone and wants to know if she really called the police, and she says, You bet your ass I did. And he cries, My parents are going to be so mad at me. I kind of start to feel a little bad for Stu here. I I shouldn't, but I do. Is this just great acting by uh, Matthew Lillard, you think? Do you think his motive is actually peer pressure, though? <laughs> no, I think that he just spit it out right away. I think he's crazy. Okay, I'm being that serious, like, because I couldn't remember, he's you know, a soci- having just watched the movie, yeah. what his motive for he's going a, along. He's and a sociopath, and I just thought he thought it would be fun. He's, like, obsessed with it. He likes some scary movies, so I don't know. I think he's legit just crazy, right? Yeah. So Billy's looking for Sid here, and she runs out of the closet and stabs him with an umbrella in the chest twice. Um, great move by her. He falls down, and then Stu emerges from the kitchen, and now... He, in the last scene, he wasn't able to walk, but now he's running at her uh, full speed. She kind of monkey flips him, almost like a wrestling move here, and he lands on his back, and then they start to kind of wrestle a little bit, and they're over by the TV. She grabs a flower vase and slams it on his head, and then when he falls down, she slams the TV on top of it, and it electrocutes him, and bye-bye, Stu. Uh, what do you think of this death scene here? I really like the way that like all the pieces like come together. And then everything just like it moves, starts moving faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's such a great horror movie ending in a lot of ways. Uh, and then, yeah, he's just he gets killed by the TV. Yep. I thought this was really cool. It's, it's almost like the end of Lost Boys where they kill him with the stereo. And then Corey Haynes like death by stereo. 
Such a cool scene. Um, Randy sits up. She says, I thought you were dead. Randy says, he probably should have been. He's never been so happy to be a virgin, though the virgin never dies. Billy punches him in the face, and he sits up, and he starts choking Sydney. And then a shot is fired, killing Billy, and it's Gail Weathers. And she says, this time I didn't forget the safety. Randy warns that this is the moment when the supposed killer comes back to life for one last scare. And then we see Billy go, Ugh! And then Sydney shoots him right in the forehead. The last line for her is, not in my movie. Dad comes flying out of the closet. And uh, the last scene in here is Gail on air. And uh, we're starting to, the movie's starting to, or the camera's starting to pan out and show the whole house. And she's talking about how many more teens are dead now. And we have an end to this harrowing story, like the plot of a scary movie. And that's how it ends. What do you think of the ending here? I think with the twist, you know, giving out the two killers, the motive, the backstory, the stabbings, the shooting, the umbrella, it's a pretty high-powered ending. Yeah. I know it seems like I've been poo-pooing this movie the entire way through, which is because I like it so much that I can't help but be critical of it. Well, there's definitely a lot of things that you could you could poke holes in. and I found a video on YouTube. It was like everything wrong with uh, Scream in 16 minutes. It has like 4 million views on it. So... I mean, there's definitely some people that, that think there's some plot holes. Overall, um, what did you think of the movie as a whole? Getting a chance to rewatch it for the first time in years? Um, it has been at least a decade since I watched it, but what did you think? I definitely was happy that, you know, we took, we took well, you guys, you guys picked this movie. Um, yep. Like I said before, I was a little bit nervous because there are so much, you know, in-movie references. And, you know, this might wind up being one of our longer podcasts. Um, but it was... It was excellent to watch. It still holds up. I think that it's great because it's getting us to talk about horror movies and it's getting us to talk about story and it gets us to talk about pacing, gets us to talk about our character development, subplots and backstories and the way that we tell these stories as opposed to like a movie like, say, maybe Dr. Giggles, where you don't get to go into that much depth about it. (laughs) I I mean that with love. Uh, And I'm with you, man. I'm excited. I want to watch the second one and the third one and not the fourth one. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to watch two and three. I don't think we'll do a review on the sequel right away. So we have us a little time. But I, I definitely want to watch two just because I, I feel like I don't remember it now. I'm like, well, where do they go next? I, just, I, don't spoil it for me, damn it. I know Aunt Jackie's in one of them from Roseanne. <laughs> yeah, from Roseanne. Yeah, she is in it. <laughs> That's all, I, To me, the second and the third movie, they blend together. I don't necessarily remember what happens to who, what, where, when, and how. The only thing I remember from the second movie is the opening scene with Jada Pinkett Smith and her boyfriend, and then her getting, like, killed in the bathroom, because that always freaks me out when I'm at the movie theaters. I'm like, somebody going to stab me? (laughs) Nope, that's a scary movie. (laughs) So, thank you for voting on this episode. I thought revisiting Scream was awesome. We had a fun time hanging out in 1996. We're going to be back next week with another episode that you guys voted on. We're doing Super Mario Brothers. So get ready to strap it in and get ready to hear. I'm definitely going to be anti-Super Mario Brothers. I think Justin's going to be surprised at how well this movie has not aged well. And uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about with Super Mario Brothers. There's some okay performances and then there's going to be some what the hell is this? But I'm looking forward to covering it. I think this will be a fun episode to listen to, uh, hear us go back and forth. Maybe we won't agree on a lot of stuff. Who knows? Up on our Twitter right now, I'm going to put a new poll topic up. 
Let's pick the first movie for February. I'm going to run this for a week. So when you're listening to this, it's going to be either Thursday or maybe Wednesday um, at some point. So you'll have between Wednesday to Wednesday of, of this next week to vote. Let's do comedy movie. So JD, let's jump into a comedy. Let's let's pick some to choose. What do you what do you want to go with here? Are we talking straight comedy? Or are we talking kids comedy? Or are we talking sports comedy? Just anything that makes us laugh? Anything that makes us laugh. You know what? Oh boy. Let's do this. Let's go Sandler. So we have some parameters set up here. Let's pick four Sandler movies and see which one wins out. So which ones do you want to put on the list here? We, we want to go Big Sandler now? <laughs> Big Sandler? Sure. I mean, I, I first comes to my mind that it has to be Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison have to be on the list, right? Okay. So if we cover Happy <laughs> Gilmore... What might we talk about in that episode? Lots of Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers, good old Chubbs. So if we're going to do the other Adam Sandler movies, I'm going to pick one right now. And I know we, we had talked about doing this, but I'm going to add it to the list. Let the fans vote. Let's put in The Wedding Singer. What might we talk about if we do The Wedding Singer? Lots of great haircuts. How <laughs> creepy the limo driver is and Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Awesome. Third movie on the list is going to be Billy Madison. Billy goes back to school to inherit his father's hotel empire. What might we talk about if we do Billy Madison? Easily, how Eric is one of the most malicious movie villains ever. That guy is crazy. And I'm not saying anything against Shooter McGavin. I know I didn't mention him when we talked about Happy Gilmore. But it's two movies where the movie villains are just insane. (laughs) I also like Principal Moses in that movie... And his secret life as a professional wrestler. That always Was makes the, me crack The up. Blob? Yeah, The Blob, I think he is in that movie. And then the fourth movie, I'm going to pick... All right, let's do Bulletproof. So this is um, you know, more like action comedy. So it's a little bit of a different twist. We got Damon Wayans. We got Adam Sandler. What might we talk about if we cover Bulletproof? I have no idea because I've never seen Bulletproof. Okay. Well, I'll give you the the quick little line here. Two criminals, Keats and Moses, end their friendship when Keats turns out to be an undercover cop. Many years later, the two are forced to work together when Keats is assigned to protect Moses as a witness. And uh, we got a great villain in this one as well, and it's uh, James Kahn, and he's playing the uh, the main guy that wants to uh, to kill Moses for uh, snitching on him. It's a great movie. I really like Bulletproof. It's funny, too. So those are our four choices. So go to the Twitter right now and vote. We've got Happy Gilmore is the first choice. The Wedding Singer is number two. Billy Madison, we go back to school. Or number four, Bulletproof. You guys pick the movie, and that's going to be our first movie of February. Uh, coming at you hot. So next week, we got Super Mario Brothers. So we'll hop into DeLorean. We're going to cruise back to present day. We want to thank you guys for joining us for Scream Episode 22. And we'll be back next week with Super Mario Brothers. In the meantime, visit us at Back in Time Pod, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, backintimepod.wordpress.com. And we'll see you at the next movie. You guys have a great week. Everybody do the dinosaur.